Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? We're going to be talking about Blinken's visit to China, Biden's bribery scandal, and then we'll talk about a number of remarks that Putin has been making regarding the war and regarding the Russian economy and peace treaties. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Russian oil flows being restored to North Korea. So we have trade resuming between Russia and North Korea, which is likely to build up over the coming months as BRICS grows stronger and as Russia deepens its ties with the non-Western world. And as they push further into Asia, that's inevitably going to mean North Korea. But I believe it's also going to mean South Korea as well. The South Koreans really have shown no interest in being a part of our uh, attempt at destroying Russia through Ukraine. The South Koreans didn't really want to give us the, the what, half a million shells that they gave us, uh, which is why they didn't allow us to send it to Ukraine. So it's more of a, they give us half a million shells and then we send our own half a million shells to Ukraine. And the promise is that we'll give them the shells back at some point in the future. Uh, I don't know if they're going to get those back. We really don't have much in the way of productive capacity. Uh, We're producing around like 40,000 shells a month, whereas the Russians are producing 200,000. And the Europeans aren't exactly heavyweights in shell production. So, look, we technically can pay it back. But 40,000 a month times 12 months, I mean, it would take a whole year's worth of production to pay the South Koreans back in those. I just don't think they're going to get it back. But that's just me. But the South Koreans have shown very little interest in the anti-China posture. They've shown very little interest in the anti-Russia posture. They've stayed out of the Ukraine war. They've been very silent. The Asian countries that we expect to be our allies against China, they've all been very silent, and I believe it's been smarter than to do. They've been very silent on Ukraine, save for Taiwan. Taiwan has drawn uh, similarities between themselves and the Ukrainians. But Japan, no comment. South Korea? No comment. Indonesia, Vietnam, no comment. In fact, Indonesia floated a peace proposal uh, for the war that didn't, that wasn't like a towing the line where it's, oh, Ukraine has to get every piece of its territory back, which is unrealistic. They're not going to get that back. At the very least, the Indonesians said, hey, let's just freeze the conflict where it is, and Ukraine gets something, the Russians get something, and we can end the fighting. But as we'll talk about later on, the forces back in Ukraine aren't very pro-peace. Not really. Like They don't like peace. I mean, we talk about the sabotage of the peace last year, which could have been had in March. And the sabotage of the other peace talks that were happening, it wasn't just uh, the talks in Istanbul, but the talks in Israel. There are multiple attempts at making peace. And then you get to the point where the Ukrainians just say no. 
and it is the Ukrainians. They want all of their territory back, and the Russians say no. And from that point, it's really a difference in philosophy, uh, especially when you look at how people who aren't directly involved in the war, and I mean who aren't Russia and, uh, and Ukraine, well, actually, no, because the Russians view it as a part of a longer series of events. They don't view the war as having started in 2022, like most other analysts treat the war. Well, like how they view the war and how the Ukrainians treat the war. The Russians don't view it as having started in 2022. They view the war as having started in 2014. And if you view it from that point of view, which is the way that I've pointed it out multiple times on the podcast, if you view the conflict as having started in 2014, not 2022, well, now you include the Minsk I and Minsk II agreements. So the peace proposals being floated back in March of last year are unofficial Minsk III, a third peace treaty that was floated and rejected by the Ukrainians because there was Minsk one. The Ukrainians didn't honor that. There was the ceasefire, the basic ceasefire, pull your heavy guns away from the front line and bring into the fighting. They didn't do that. Minsk two, that was, that's the one that was implemented. Well, but not enforced implemented, but not enforced for eight years where Ukraine was actually going to keep all of its territory including the Donbass, but the, they, the Ukrainians had to make constitutional amendments and to give specifically autonomy to the Donbass republics, Luhansk and Donetsk. And then they would still be a part of Ukraine. They would just have more autonomy within Ukraine, but they would still be a part of Ukraine and they'd have their own representatives to represent them in Ukraine nationally. They didn't do that. So they deny peace agreement one, which is just a ceasefire. They deny peace agreement two, and they lead, they, they string along the Russians for eight years with the backing of France, Germany, United Kingdom, United States. None of them had any interest in making peace. The Ukrainians led Russia along for eight years, saying that they were going to make peace and then didn't make peace. So they said no to peace agreement number two. The Russians come in directly when the Ukrainians mass troops on the border with the, the Donbass which blatantly violates all the stipulations of the peace agreement. If you're, if you're going to violate the stipulations of the peace agreement, of the ceasefire, then it's clear that you're not even interested in peace. So the Russians go in, but the Russians didn't go in to destroy Ukraine. They went in to, put, to force the Ukrainians to take this shit seriously, which is why the Russians went in suing for peace. And again, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later on in the episode. They come in suing for peace, and then the Ukrainians say no again. Uh, this time they were under the influence, much heavier influence from the West. And which is why I call, I refer to the agreements that were reached in March, but again, never enforced. That's unofficial Minsk three. And every other outcome is another level of unofficial Minsk. If the war ends today with the current status quo borders, it's Minsk four. If it ends, <laughs> With Russia annexing half of Ukraine, everything east of the Dnieper and all of Ukraine's Black Sea coast, that's Minsk V, unofficial Minsk V. And unofficial Minsk VI is that Russia just annexes the whole thing. So that's that's the situation here. It's And again, I will, we'll talk about that. But we have U Ukraine. They don't want to make peace. But the Asian partners of the United States don't want to involve themselves in this either. 
because they like Russia don't view this as having started in 2022. They view it as having started in 2014. And so when you view it that way, it's not, oh, the evil Russians just don't want to make peace. It's Ukraine refuses to make peace at every opportunity. So why should we come in to try to bail you out from your own bad decisions? Here, we'll float a peace proposal, but understand you're not going to get your borders from 1991 because you've already rejected two other peace proposals that would have given you that. Minsk 1 and Minsk 2, they already rejected those. So how, how are you going to expect to get those back in the third peace treaty and the fourth peace treaty, really? Because that, that's what we're on right now. We're on a potential fourth peace treaty because they rejected number three back in March. All our Asian allies are silent, which says a lot. They're not trying to go along. So as Russia builds up its influence and its economic connections in Asia to bypass the West, expect more of our Asian quote unquote allies to fall in line with the BRICS because it's in their own self-interest. Uh, I went off on a bit of a tangent, but I hope I came full circle so you get what I was saying. But you have that. You have the U.S. promising $1.5 billion to Sudan. And while I oppose sending money to other countries, it, if it's actually people volunteering to pledge their own money, which is what it looks like, it's a donation drive. If it's people donating their own money, then fine. It, it's your money. You can do what you want with it. Uh, I just don't want the government sending taxpayer money to other people's countries. That's not what you do with my money. If I want to send money to the Sudanese, I'll send it myself. Or at the very least, you can ask me to donate it. You don't have to take it from me and then say, oops, it got laundered. I'm not trying to hear that. And I'm sure we'll hear plenty of stories about money laundering in Ukraine. When this thing is over, we're already starting to see it. You have the EU. Well, actually, we have Lloyd Austin in denial about the equipment losses in Ukraine. He was remarking about some Bradleys saying that the Russians were just playing the video over and over and over again. But it's, uh, no, no, we're just, uh, well, I say we, the Ukrainians are just losing that much equipment. And it's shocking. Like when, and it's been this way throughout the entirety of the war. But now that we're talking about heavy equipment, not just artillery and artillery shells. Now that we're talking about tanks, armored vehicles, things that you can see and that you can visualize and conceptualize. Because if I tell you that we gave them 10,000 artillery shells, you can't really picture that. Not really. But if I tell you we gave them 30 tanks, 30 Bradleys, you can you can visualize that. You can look out outside your window and you can see them on the field using your imagination on the street. You can see that. You can visualize that. You can conceptualize that, which means you can understand the losses when I tell you that they've lost that many. So it, we've been in this situation where the Ukrainians have been using up the equipment we give them faster than we are even able to produce it here at home but because it was things that well we couldn't really conceptualize like thousands and tens of thousands of artillery shells i mean we gave them what two and a half million perhaps three million artillery shells so well certainly three million with the, the other half million we just gave them three million plus artillery shells you can't visualize and conceptualize that so when I tell you that they've been losing them at the rates of thousands a day, well, okay, that's okay. That's pretty bad, but I can't really, you know, conceptualize that. And I'm not calling people dumb. I'm just saying that the numbers get so large that it's hard to get a grasp on what exactly you're looking at. But when it's in the dozens and the tens, it's the hundreds, 
it's easier to conceptualize, especially when you're talking about something bigger like tanks and fighter jets and armored vehicles. So now that we're getting to the point where we're losing, and again, I say we as if we're the Ukrainians, but you know what? We may, I may as well say we because it's our stuff. <laughs> we're losing 30 tens, 20s. We're, we're losing this heavy equipment by the dozens every week that this offensive goes on sometimes we lose dozens of them in a day and again it's going to be very interesting seeing the numbers come out of this when the offensive comes to a conclusion or when some report comes out uh nice and conveniently long after the thing is over or right in the middle of it you know you never know what these reports whether the media is going to be honest or not but that's what you deal with with the propaganda press but now that it's heavy equipment, now that it's the big boy stuff, the the, the, the Tonka trucks instead of the the big uh, the play car, the toy cars, now that you're dealing with the caterpillars, you can really conceptualize what we're losing. And he's talking about, oh, we're losing. They're just playing the same video over and over and over again. No, they're just running through our equipment orders of magnitude faster than we can replace it. Like an entire month's worth of production for these armored vehicles, we produce like uh, thirty to maybe maybe thirty things in a, in a month. They run through that in a day. A whole month of production gone in a day is what we we're dealing with with these equipment losses. And again, it's been this way throughout the whole war, just with artillery and javelins and and missiles and HIMARS artillery and the shells. We've been dealing with this all the entirety of the war. But now that it's the heavy duty stuff, it's easier to see, it's easier to visualize and conceptualize and really get a, a grip on, oh my goodness, how are we going to replace that? Because it's it's one thing to say that we have a million shells and oops, we're down to 20,000. It's like, okay, that, that's still a, a decent number, 20,000, you know, us non-military minds who aren't really too concerned. But if I tell you we had a million tanks and now we're down to 30, you're like, oh, now hold on now. Well, whoa, whoa. How, how do we get here? But wow. Wow. Okay. Um, we have a problem. And and yes, we do have a problem. Because <laughs> that's our equipment. Now, that's not the Ukrainian stuff. That's barely the Ukrainian. The, uh, the Ukrainians. That's barely the European stuff. That is our stuff being blown up and destroyed for free. Because <laughs> the Ukrainians aren't buying the equipment. It's being lend-leased to them, which is why lend-lease is a garbage policy that is un-American and forces us to pay for other people's wars. You're using equipment that we paid for. You're handing it out like candy for free to foreign governments. They use it. It gets destroyed. It gets damaged. And they never have to pay us back. The Ukrainians are never going to pay us back. I'm not even convinced there's going to be a Ukraine when the war is over. How, who's going to pay for this? Oh, it's the taxpayer. Oops. All that equipment that was supposed to be for our military, we gave it away. Oops. Now you have to pay for it again. That's the situation that we are in. And unfortunately, our leaders, courtesy, uh, just judging by Lloyd Austin, who is our defense secretary, they're in denial. And it's not just him. I think he is representative of the whole, with very few exceptions. The few exceptions that are able to get a grip over how bad things are going in Ukraine are unfortunately the China hawks because they want to use the reality of the, how bad the war is going in Ukraine 
as an argument to why we should pivot to China and get ourselves involved in an even more unwinnable war. It's, it's, oh, it's, ah, it's tiring. It's destructive to the mind listening to these people. It's, it's, it's such a dichotomy. It's literally the, the, the duality of man where you can articulate these incredibly great incredibly reasonable and rational reasons as to why we shouldn't be involved in Ukraine. Uh, just off their own merits. We're losing this amount of equipment. We can't replace it. Oh, the Ukrainians, they aren't doing as well as we thought they were. The Russians aren't as weak as we were led to believe. Uh, they're not being bled dry. Okay, They've only lost X number of men. The Ukrainians have lost, uh, uh, depending on who you're trusting, a million plus. <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't say a million plus yet, but shoot, McGregor is putting it at uh, 700,000. Douglas McGregor, Colonel Douglas McGregor. RFK Jr. is putting it at 700,000. Well, he's implying 700,000 when he says 350,000 dead. And Ukraine's dead are usually about half of their total casualty figure, which would imply 700,000 casualties. So depending on what number you're looking at, 700,000 casualties versus uh, us here on the podcast, hey, we're we're still looking at 200,000 Ukrainians dead, which suggests that maybe 400,000 are are wounded. Well, uh, 400,000 casualties because the other half are going to be wounded, 200,000 wounded, 200,000 dead. Hey, we're, 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 look, I'm trying, okay? I'm trying, but it's highly likely I'm going to end up having to revise that upwards. Depending on what numbers you're looking at, you know, it's it's not going as well as to, we make it look on the news. So let's withdraw. Let's let the Russians have their have their day, right? Let's get up out of here. And then we'll live to fight another day. Cause we have and then they'll turn around and say, We live to fight another day because we have to fight China. And it's like, oh my gosh, bro. Why couldn't you just stop right there? with we should leave why'd you have to throw the china thing in there and then completely upend the entire argument saying we shouldn't be involved in this unwinnable war we need to be ready to fight this unwinnable war it's it's something but uh, i guess uh, you take what you can get i suppose i guess I, I guess it's a good thing that they're opposed to the war in ukraine but what good is that going to do me if they're just going to get into another war i don't i don't know but anyway, we have the EU establishing a trade deal with Kenya, and Kenya, interestingly enough, is ditching the dollar, and it's seeking to lead a number of other African nations to do the same through a pan-African payment system, so an, another another alternative to SWIFT that will facilitate trade in local currencies, so the African countries don't have to use the dollar for doing trade between themselves and other African, current, other African countries. And I imagine that there'll be um, there's going to be some compatibility built into this system, so that African countries can do payments between themselves and say non-African countries. There'll, there'll probably be things for that. A number of different payment systems that are not SWIFT are being built up right now, and it's just another another paragraph on the wall where there's a whole lot of writing. And that writing is telling us that the dollar's days as the world's reserve currency are up. It's not just numbered, it's up. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, what are we going to do about that? 
are we going to take the incredibly stupid decision of running around the world and trying to force other countries to use our currency? Or are we going to find a way to divorce our currency, the value of our currency from whether or not other countries are using it for trade with countries that are not even us? It's one thing if they're trading with us and that's, you know, where they get where the value of the dollar comes from. Although that too is a bit nebulous. It, it is a factor. Uh, it, it always has been. If countries are trading with you, then that means there's going to be a demand for your currency. But primarily the value of our dollar should not be derived from whether or not other countries, country X, should our, our dollar should not be derived from whether country X is doing trade with country B in dollars. That, that doesn't make any sense. So we're again being presented with another event, another event that's going to force us to make some decisions. Are we going to try to stay the course of being the world's reserve currency? Or are we going to go back to sound money? Because if we go back to sound money, it really doesn't matter who is or isn't using our currency because the value of our dollar will be derived internally rather than externally. Easy peasy solution, but it does not facilitate empires, which is why it's not on the table for anyone who isn't, you know, the MAGA Republicans. But we'll see what becomes of this. I believe we'll move towards that outcome anyway by way of, you know, by force of reality, especially once the depression hits. We have Serbia detaining three Kosovan policemen, and this has caused a spike in tensions between Serbia and Kosovo, as if there was ever a, a lessening of tensions. You have NATO putting another battalion of troops on standby for a potential deployment to Kosovo, which would lift the total number of troops in Kosovo to around 4,500, especially after the deployment of those Turkish troops to the Balkans for the first time in 100 years. Very, very symbolic. I don't know if it flew over the heads of a lot of people. You know, we're just going to, oh yeah, the, the Turks the Turks are back in Kosovo. You know, I'm sure that's going to... I'm sure it's going to galvanize support in the Balkans for NATO, bringing the Turks back as the peacekeepers of the region. And will Turkey leave? Because there is a debate about what the multipolar world order is going to bring. Is it going to bring a return to, say, the old imperial systems? Are we going to see the clash of empires on top of the clash of civilizations? Or are we going to see a framework of nation states that respect that truly does respect the sovereignty of other nation states? Now, that's going to be a, a very interesting question to see play out over the course of this next century. And it just might be the question of the century. Is this is it going to be different this time for real? Is it going to be different this time or is it going to be more of the same, but with a different flavor? That's going to be a very interesting thing to observe. Of course, we'll observe it here on this podcast, but there's something in the background to keep your eyes on. We have the Ukrainian counteroffensive entering its third week with very few solid gains. They have yet to reach the first line of heavy Russian defenses. There's there's sort of a the no man's land where land is traded back and forth between the Russians and the Ukrainians, and that's where the offensive has been stalled out. At. Again, you have pushes here, and then there's counter pushes from the Russians, then the Ukrainians come back, then the Russians come back. And the land is not very steady, but the Ukrainians have yet to reach the first defensive line, let alone the second and the third, which suggests to me, and again, this we're going to have to wait and see 
how this plays out over the course of the weeks, potentially two months that this goes on for, it conveys to me that the Ukrainian offensive is really not going very well. Because at this point in the game, you could you should have at least reached the first defensive line. With two weeks, especially when you look at the uh, equipment losses that the Ukrainians are suffering. So this isn't going very well for them. And that's the general consensus here. It's not going very well. Not going very well. Putin has uh, some things to say about that. We'll get into that later on in the episode. But yeah, as we go into week three, we'll see what becomes of this. But I'm not too hopeful. But what I will say is that the more the Ukrainians commit to this offensive, the more equipment they lose, the more men they will lose, the weaker their formations will become by the end of it. And that might just soften them up enough for the beginnings of a Russian counter-offensive. The backbreaker offensive is what I'll call it. We have Business Insider, uh, again, going back to the counter-offensive. Business Insider says that 16 Bradleys have been destroyed or abandoned in Ukraine's counter-offensive, and that was towards the beginning of the week, so uh, it's probably more than that as well. Uh, you, and last but not least, we have France's president, Emmanuel Macron, seeking an invitation to the upcoming BRICS summit in South Africa. So we, the, the multipolar world order, it's rising. And the, the more the writing, the more writing there is on the wall, the more people will notice that there is writing on the wall. And I'm certain that the French see it. I'm certain that all of Europe sees it. But the French, I don't know if I want to say they're more likely to act on it. But at the very least, they give that impression. Perhaps they won't be. Truthfully, it should be Britain. Britain should be the first ones to act on this. I mean, what was the point of Brexit if you're just going to share the fate of the EU by doing everything that the EU does? I don't know. Uh, but we'll see what becomes of this, especially, but I think it's going to be the, the Asian allies of the United States who go along with the BRICS first. Australia might as well. If they're smart, they will. But that's the rapid fire, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. But before we begin, I'm going to say that I'm going to be taking the topics that we cover on the meat section of the episode, uh, the three three or four or so topics that we cover during the meat. I'm going to be taking them and I'll be releasing them separately, like individually over the course of the week so that in the event that other people who don't have the time to sit through an hour long podcast. And I know some of that, that might include some of you, you'll be able to chew it up, you know, piece by piece, instead of trying to find your spot in this hour and a half to two hour long podcast, and sometimes longer when we do special episodes. So I'm going to be doing that. So after this episode drops, I'm going to have the meat sections of the episode is this the counteroffensive? I believe that's the one that's going to go up first. Then we're going to drop these sections from the meat of the counteroffensive, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And then we'll have this episode's meat sections, the topics. It, says, it feels weird saying meat sections, but I'll have this episode's topics released piecemeal uh, after that. So expect that. Uh, so if it, it looks a bit funny on your end to suddenly go from getting one video, well, one episode a week to suddenly having like 15, uh, that's why. So that's what we're going to be doing from now on. 
And yes, yes. But we'll still be doing our regularly scheduled programs every Monday. But with that said, let's get into the meat of this episode. We have Blinken visiting China. Now, I read this article from the Associated Press covering the trip that Blinken took to China. Now, I'll still hold this over his head. He should have gone back in February with the whole balloon fiasco, that whole nonsense, uh, if only to discuss the hot topic of a Chinese balloon flying over American airspace, to discuss that with the people potentially responsible, you know, the, the Chinese. I mean, it's a Chinese balloon. You're, you're not going to bring this up with the Chinese. You're just going to cancel the trip. Uh, I'll still hold that over his head, right? I'll preface that. And while I don't have <clears throat> the the best of uh, opinions regarding all Blinken here, I have to give credit where credit's due. And I'll give it in a minute, but I have to give the context because in the article that I read, and this is from the uh, Associated Press, it's a, it read, quote, and this is sort of a, a, a segment of the article, which I felt really summarized the trip up until a certain point, and I'll get into that point. But it says, quote, in the first round of talks on Sunday, Blinken met and he met with Qingyang. Uh, he met for nearly six hours with Chinese Foreign Minister Qingyang, after which both countries said that they had agreed to continue high-level discussions. However, there was no sign that any of the most fractious issues between them were closer to resolution, end quote. So basically nothing happened. Uh, during the first day of the summit, and they barely got any, they barely made any ground, any headway on the issues that matter, uh, trade, Taiwan, the big one, intellectual property theft, and then the, those are the real ones that matter, you know, that and sovereignty, you know, don't violate our sovereignty, we don't violate your sovereignty, and issues of deep demilitarization, in the Western Pacific. Those are the, the key issues. Uh, now, whether or not other people will list those as the key issues is another thing, but those are the key issues. And I'm speaking from a, from a realist standpoint. Now, just go ahead and slap that label onto myself. Those are the key issues. Because if you can deal with those issues, you really don't have problems with China. But, of course, you have all the extra problems. Oh, oh human rights abuses. Oh, democracy. Oh, oh, this, that, and the third. Oh, uh, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs. And uh, abuses in China itself, as if you were going to be able to police the Chinese on that. Those are a whole bunch of extra things that are thrown in that really get in the way of actual real discussions on real policy. And I'll just you know, throw that shade exactly where it belongs. But I was going to take that quote that I just read to you about them meeting for six hours and not getting anything discussed or, well, they discussed, but not getting anything done other than agreeing to more high level discussions. I was going to take that and run with it. to sort of lay out the problem with modern U.S. so-called diplomacy, uh, which is it's all talk and no substance. You talk, you you lay out, you try to lecture the other side about how oh you human rights abuses, oh uh, uh, freedom freedom of the press, democracy, oh democratic institutions, blah blah uh, corruption, and then you don't actually discuss ways of solving that, 
as if those were things that needed to be solved. Again, you go into diplomacy on the assumption that you that the other side has to be exactly like you. That's one of the main problems with modern quote unquote diplomacy. The other problem is again, as I alluded to, that it's all talk and no substance. Because you'll sit there and talk about these non-issues because you do not need the other side to share literally all of your values. You don't need the other side to have the exact same governance type as you to do business, to do trade, and to get things done. You can have agreements with countries who have radically different governing systems than you if you're willing to focus on the tangibles the tangibles i'm gonna do x and then when i do x you do y and if you don't do y then we're not going to continue the talks that's how you conduct diplomacy you do it at a step by step uh, so it's a ladder except you have one hand the other side has the other hand you reach first if you're going to reach out to another country you have to be the one to make the first step you have to be the one to say, okay, here's our deal. We're going to do X and you don't have to go way out there and say, we're going to build a, a thousand miles of high-speed rail in China. And then the Chinese are going to do this, that, and third. You can go, okay, we're going to pull back from this specific region. Say we're, we're going to, we're going to stop sending destroyers through the Taiwan Straits, right? We're going to stop doing that. And in exchange, you stop flying planes into Taiwan's air defense identification zone you do the first step and then if the chinese do the next step now you can move on to other things okay we're going to stop sailing carrier battle groups through the south china sea you stop building artificial islands in the south china sea and you stop sailing ships through the south china sea military ships so you do the first step and then if they do the second step then you go on we're going to stop doing elephant walks on guam if you'll stop if you'll stop antagonizing japan over their islands in the east china sea oh okay we do that you stop doing that okay cool now we're gonna move our military bases out of this region and in exchange you remove your military bases from those artificial islands. We got you to stop building new ones. We got you to stop sailing your ships there. But now we're going to move our military bases out of the region. You move your military bases out of the South China Sea. It, one at a time, one step at a time. Tangible actions that you can see. And so it's trust but verify. We're going to do this and you do that. We're going to do it. We're going to do our thing first, right? We trust that you're going to do that but you have to do your end of the deal before we move on to the next one. We're not going to do anything else after we do this. If you don't do we're, we're going to do X and you do Y. If we don't do X, you don't have to do Y. But if we do X and you don't do Y, we're not going to move on to Z, right? It's very simple. It's, it's been done for the thousands of years. I don't know how it's suddenly been lost on these experts, these people who think they know something. It, you do step by step easy to verify things and then you work your way up to the big complex and comprehensive deals that are a bit harder to negotiate and verify but by the time you get to that point there is a level of trust that you establish through actions by establishing that when you say you're going to do something you do it 
and the other side, if they reciprocate, now you can trust that they're going to do what they say, and they can trust that you're going to do what you say. And if you're the one reaching out, you have to be the one to make the first step. It's it's not complicated. It's, I just broke this down to you. Now, uh, perhaps I'll actually for once use the question feature at the end of the episode, even though most of you don't watch this on Anchor. But now that I've broken this down for you, look at all the 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 quote-unquote diplomacy we've been seeing for the past few decades how many of that has been based on these basic ass tenets of simple actions that you can verify followed by the next set of simple actions that you can verify how many i i'm waiting what who else who else has been doing this who else has been talking about this quite frankly um where where have we seen it we haven't seen it at all in such a long time that I don't think a lot of people in our country and or even in the West understand how real diplomacy works anymore. We have all these these posers, these fakers, who hated Trump, even though Trump understood diplomacy. He understood that if you say something that you, if you say that you're going to do something, you have to do it. And if you're not going to do something, don't say that you're going to do it. You see him deliberately avoiding saying things when you watch his interviews. He'll deliberately avoid saying certain things because if you say you're going to do something, you have to be ready to do it. Oh, oh is Putin a, a war criminal? Well, I can't say that because if I say that he's a war criminal, I have to treat him like a war criminal. And that means I can't make peace. You understand? And he, it's, oh my goodness, it's, it's so simple. Yet uh, you watch these people who will sit up there and lecture other countries day and night as if they were better. And then you, the, they don't know anything. They don't know anything. They, they haven't accomplished anything in their entire careers. Like, say what you will about Kissinger, Henry Kissinger. Say what you will about him. Terrible person. Uh, instituted, the, facilitated the creation of a very terrible international system that facilitated U.S. empire and the growth of U.S. empire in places that we really didn't need to be in. But at the very least, he knew diplomacy. At the very least, he knew that if you want to get X, uh, get this country to do something, you have to do something for them first. You're the one reaching out. You have to take the initiative. You have to take the initiative. And you get to today where it's, oh, we're going to go over there. We're going to have talks and we're going to we're going to lay out all the issues that we already know are issues. But then we're going to lay out zero solutions. We're going to lay out uh, no framework, no pathway that you can no no actionable way of achieving any of the potential solutions to the problems we're just going to say that we need a solution we're going to talk about the need for a solution but we're not going to actually put forth any proposals we're not going to put forth any action plans no plans of action to you know act on these piece on these proposals on these things these deals and then when all is said and done, when we've sat there for hours and achieved literally nothing but talking at each other, then we're going to agree to have more talks because we didn't get anything accomplished this time around. It's the dumbest thing that you will ever witness once you understand how diplomacy actually works. And again, I'm not saying that I'm from some fucking genius. I'm not saying I'm some fucking genius. But come on now, if I can get this down from the comfort of my bedroom, 
using publicly available information and publicly available history, then certainly people in the government who get paid to do this should be orders of magnitude better at it than I am. They should be fully capable of doing these things. It's really not hard. I don't speak Mandarin. <laughs> they have translators. You should be able to go to the Chinese with a plan and go, hey, we want to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to do these things. And if we do these things, we want you to do uh, A, B, and C, right? And if the Chinese do A and B, but not C, you can go, okay, we've made some good progress. Now, what's holding you up on C? Why have you not done C? And if the Chinese list a reason that is reasonable, you say, okay, well, how can we get around that? It's you talk to one another and you listen to one another, and then you find tangible, physical, real world actions that you can take to get around any problems that come up. Because there's going to be problems. The world isn't perfect. There's going to be problems with any plan. But that's why you talk to each other. That's the whole point of diplomacy. It's, it's and that was just going to be all that I was talking about. Uh, and uh, I've ranted enough to, <laughs> to justify that. But that's not where this ended. That's not where this little story of ours ended. So now that I've completed my rant about the problems with modern diplomacy, we go back to the story about Blinken meeting with Ching Gang, where they accomplished nothing, but promised more talks. But then the next day, because I, I read in the article, this is before, uh, uh, this was like yesterday when I was reading the article, it said that it's unclear if Blinken's going to meet with Xi Jinping before he leaves, because he was leaving soon. And then he mates with Xi Jinping today on Monday. So uh, a glorious little nugget of information came out. And before he left China, Blinken did have a chance to meet with chairman, Chinese chairman Xi Jinping. And during that meeting, he had some very interesting words to say. He said, quote, and this is a video of him speaking, quote, on Taiwan, I reiterated the longstanding U.S. one China policy. That policy has not changed. It's guided by the Taiwan Relations Act three joint communiques, the six assurances, uh, and I think he meant to say and the six assurances because he begins a new sentence after this, but then he says, we do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. We continue to expect the peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences, end quote. Uh, I, I I heard this and I was like, oh, oh my God, Blinken, Anthony Blinken, of all people, actually did something useful. He, he actually did his fucking job and he may have just saved us from a war in the process. Like, I, I never thought I'd see the day. I'll be, com I'll be completely honest with you. I had grown to expect that no matter how low my expectations got for this man, that he would somehow find a way n to disappoint. Like it, it, that it's been the running gag it, uh, on this little podcast of mine, where every time we talk about Blinken, it's just some new humiliation, some new disappointment. 
no matter how low I set my expectations for this man, he finds a ladder so he can go lower. And it's like, oh my goodness, bro. Just just stop. Throw in the towel and put it down. <laughs> get your get get the get your ass out of office. But then he does this, and I'm like, oh well, now hold on now. Hold on now. Maybe maybe you could, maybe you stay right where you are, you know? <laughs> Cause he actually did something useful. Now, while others might light him up for saying what he just said, and then they're gonna call him weak, they're gonna call him bought and paid for by the CCP. And yes, I know it's the CPC, you know, it's not the Chinese Communist Party, it's the Communist Party of China, but you know, CCP has a better ring to it, so I'll stick to it. But I, in an ironic twist, am not lighting him up this episode. I know it's it, the matrix is broken. Because, <laughs> like, let's go back to what he said. On Taiwan, I reiterated the long-standing U.S. one-China policy. That policy has not changed. That, in and of itself, is a revolution as far as Washington is concerned. A diplomatic revolution as far as Washington is concerned. Because over the past few years, we've been increasingly leaning towards this. Uh, I've had much stronger words to say about this, but I'll just say stupid policy of being pro-Taiwan independence. We're going we're gonna to support Taiwan. We're going to do this, that, and the third for Taiwan. We're going to help Taiwan defend themselves from China. We're, we're going to protect Taiwan from China. If China invades Taiwan, the United States is going to go to war with China, even though we have no formal alliance with Taiwan, even though we don't recognize the, the government of Taiwan because we recognize the People's Republic of China per the One China policy. Oops. People really didn't want to accept that, and they don't, and they still don't want to accept that we sign on to the one China policy, and that we formally recognize the People's Republic of China as the legitimate government of China, not the Republic of China, aka Taiwan. So it's, again, strange that Blinken saying what our stated position is on paper, the, the one that we legally agree to, it's strange that hearing him say it is somehow a revolution because nobody else was willing to enforce our legal position on the matter of Taiwan, which is that uh, they are not an independent country. As a matter of fact, we don't even recognize them as, as a sovereign entity. With, within China, we recognize them as a part of China. And that the People's Republic of China is the, the one China that we recognize. That is our actual stated position. It, it, we used to be on the Taiwan side, where Taiwan is the legitimate government and the People's Republic, they'd be illegitimate. China, then there's only one China. But ever since 1979, with Nixon and Kissinger, again, Kissinger understood diplomacy. We switched from recognizing the Republic of China to recognizing the People's Republic of China. Blinken has stated our actual policy, and he's correct when he says that this is the long-standing U.S policy and that that policy has not changed because it literally has not you have words from officials saying that we're going to do things that are inconsistent with what we've already agreed to do per our being in the one china policy where we recognize the people's republic which is china like it, it, it's a very strange situation again i'll just say that because uh, what should be common sense is now blasphemy <laughs> 
because of internal developments in the United States and in American politics. I mean, you even have uh, that video from Vivek, uh, uh, what's his, what's his last name? Oh goodness. Oh, uh, Vivek Ramswamy, I think, I think I'll look that up. Uh, but yeah, he had this very fiery video where he's taught in two videos, actually, where he promises that we're going to come save Taiwan and that we're going to export the Second Amendment to Taiwan and that's going to send a message to Xi Jinping. He he ain't nothing. And it's like, oh, uh, well, OK, um, have fun with that. Uh, Ramaswamy, Vivek Ramaswamy, the presidential candidate currently polling at, well, who cares? Because <laughs> Trump's at 60-something percent. <laughs> but yeah, main mainline presidential candidate, uh, and it's a bit strange to call them mainline considering how low all of them are polling, but then again, that's the Trump effect. He sort of just sucks the oxygen out the room. And thank goodness for us that he does, because Trump isn't entertaining any of these crazy ideas. He's entertaining diplomacy and trade, things that we need to be focused on, which is why I'll be voting for him. Even if he, even if I have to vote for that man while he's in the while he's in a prison cell, I'll do it. We need him. We need him back. But Vivek Ramaswamy, as on multiple occasions, talked about using the United States military to protect Taiwan. Like this is, this hasn't been something campaigned on before. Like it's, it's been up there, it's been there, but now you have someone campaigning on this. This is one of their staple, staple issues in the campaign. We're going to, what we're going to do for Taiwan, how are we going to respond to China on Taiwan? And he also very interestingly enough, uh, is the closest to conceding my point regarding Taiwan, which is that if we were producing microchips ourselves, we wouldn't, There'd be no economic incentive for us to do so. In fact, we'd have more economic incentive to lead them to their own, to lead them to their own fate, because they'd be a competitor to U.S. chip production. So, in the event that the U.S. was self-sufficient in chip production, we wouldn't have uh, less to the point of negative economic incentive to come sail, save them and bail them out. Because if they go down and we're self-sufficient in chips, well, now we can eat up their market, their market share globally. Vivek has stated that so long as the United States is dependent on Taiwan, we need to protect Taiwan for the chips. Now, again, no one, no one bothers to bring up uh, all the other things that we import from China and the vast difference in volume and quantity and quality of goods uh, and the impact of those goods on the lives of everyday people. No one brings up uh, all the things that we get from China and when they make these arguments about how we need to protect the thing that we import from Taiwan, even if that means fighting a war with China for, no one applies that argument very consistently, but I'm not here to talk about consistency of other people's arguments for now. But he's a very interesting candidate in that regard. But again, his main line issue is Taiwan and America's relation with Taiwan. And he wants America to defend Taiwan, at least until we become self-sufficient in chips. Now he has said that he wants to stop supporting Taiwan in the event that we become self-sufficient. But he lay, but he at least lays out the precondition that so long as we are dependent on them, we should use everything, every tool we have in our inventory to defend them. 
that's going to get us into a war. That goes against our stated policy, which is the one China policy where we recognize the People's Republic of China. Nobody is saying we need to switch up. Uh, well, nobody in politics, uh, and I mean in office or running for office, is saying we need to switch the recognition from China to Taiwan in, as part of the one China policy so that our stated policy on China is actually reflective of what they're talking about. They just want to take the action without actually amending our stated position, which leaves us in a very interesting legal conundrum. But Blinken, he's, he's done the right thing. He actually did the right thing. And I never thought I'd see it. I never thought I applaud him for finally articulating what America's actual position on Taiwan is, as he's supposed to do, as the Secretary of State. He's not supposed to go out there and reiterate opinions about what our stance is on Taiwan. He's supposed to lay out what our actual position is so that everyone knows what's going on and so that actions can be taken based on actual positions. He did his job. He did his job. He stated the actual position on Taiwan instead of towing the line for these ideologues who want to get us into a war with China. He didn't embarrass America. He didn't say something incredibly stupid uh, that you'd have to see to believe. He did his job. And yeah, Blinken had a good day. Blinken had a good day. And he may just have saved us from a war yet. My goodness. He had a good day. But now we'll move on to the next topic in this episode, which is the Biden bribery scandal. So the Bidens got caught accepting a bribe from a foreign national. Another one. <laughs> uh, and apparently it was uh, five million was supposed to be allocated to Hunter and another five million to Joe. Although rumors are that five million going to Hunter was really going to go to Joe anyway but just wasn't sent him directly. So the man, Victor Shokin, he kept these recordings, kept recordings of these conversations, these audio recordings that he had between him and the Bidens to use as leverage in the case that he got into trouble. And now, as per the investigation, the ongoing investigation into the Biden corruptions, now we know about this. And it's very interesting that it's all coming out. And this isn't going to stop. So I find it interesting that the this corruption scandal is being gradually uh, sort of dripped out to us as we're entering into this election cycle. And it's built up for a while, but now that we're getting from the point where we're going from a drip to a flood, and it's not just the Bidens, it's about a whole bunch of other things, namely Satanism in Hollywood. And my goodness, I mean, Putin routinely calls us the satanic West. And, you know, at a certain point, you got to look at all this satanic imagery. I mean, what award show was it where they basically had the devil out there on the stage? And it's like, okay, well, you can't really call that Russian propaganda if these guys are literally out here dressed as the fucking devil. Uh, and I think that that's cool. Okay, that's... So a lot of stuff is being sort of exposed that and the Epstein stuff, which is uh, very interesting how no one on the Lolita Express, and I find it uh, interesting that it's called the Lolita Express, like a lolly, 
express and they were having uh, illicit activities with kids and none of them get arrested. None of the people involved in those get arrested. Uh, we find out that they were spying on Trump's campaign. No one gets arrested. It's like, okay, cool. So uh, when's anybody going to go to jail? We find out that COVID was a scam and it's like, okay, cool. It's nice that you said you're sorry, but uh, who's going to go to jail? Like th- that, that's the point that I'm at. Who's going to go to jail for all that? Because the damage is immense. The damage to people done by COVID, the damage to our political system done by all these fake scandals and investigations and the corruption. The Bidens are just a piece of it. They're just the most evident because they've been the most sloppy, quite frankly. The pedophilia, it's all there. And it's like, okay, who's going to jail? Like, we Do we really even need to get into 9-11? And the role that our government played in allowing that to happen. Uh, shoot, we found out that the two people who flew planes in the buildings were recruited by the CIA prior to 9-11. Well, obviously prior to 9-11, they, they couldn't have done it after 9-11, they were dead. But it's like, okay, well, we've gone from uh, the government neglecting their duties, the FBI mainly, to now the perpetrators were literally on the books of the CIA. So... Are we at the point where we're not gonna where we're gonna say the government literally orchestrated 9-11? The conspiracy theory, that one is now the truth now? Is that where we're at? And if so, who's going to jail? That's where I'm at. That is really where I'm at. We have the but the all this coming out now, it's very interesting that it's coming out now. And a lot of them, they've, they've done a lot. They've done very well at covering their tracks. And if it wasn't for all this information being dumped out to us now, we probably still wouldn't know it, or it'd be in the recesses of the internet, in the the backwoods of the internet, so to speak. The, all, all those conspiracy theorists uh, are at it again, except they're right. Oops, they were onto something. But the Bidens, of all the corrupt families, uh, have somehow managed to be the sloppiest of them all. They managed to be the sloppiest. Now we know about even more money that they've been caught up in being bribed with. Because And this is, again, just the newest piece of corruption that we're learning about the Biden family specifically. It's not even the newest piece of corruption about the government. It's the newest piece of corruption about the Biden's family. And in a sense, in that regard, it's, it's really nothing new. Like, we already knew about the Bidens being corrupt. We, we already knew this. We we really did. We already knew that Biden used his position to facilitate Hunter's private business deals when Joe, Joe Biden was the vice president. We already knew that. We already knew about Joe Biden using his influence as the vice president to get Hunter that job on the board of Burisma, where he was getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Even though he had no experience in energy, no experience running a large corporation in general, and no actual attendance on this board for the most part, and all while being openly being a substance abuser, aka that guy was higher than a pilot while on the job. But he's getting hundreds of thousands of year. Okay. Do we even need to talk about the Hunter Biden laptop story? Where it was discovered in emails on that Hunter... Uh, and, and the emails sent to Hunter from the CEFC, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, a Chinese energy firm, they, they set aside 10% for the big guy. 
Time for that for the big guy. Who's the big guy? Oh, it's Joe. Oops. The story magically gets censored right before the election. And then is admitted as true after. Okay, well, shoot, that's election interference. That's a crime. And then, do we really even need to bring up that infamous video? The one where Biden admitted, he admitted, and he was bragging about it. He admitted during an interview that he pressured the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor who just so happened to be investigating Burisma, that same company that Hunter Biden was on the board of, getting paid hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, he pressured the Ukrainian government to fire the prosecutor who was investigating that company. And if they didn't, he said that they wouldn't get the billion dollars that was set aside for them, which is extortion, a violation of the constitutional powers of the vice president, a violation of federal spending laws, and as some might call it, a quid pro quo. Now, the real president was impeached over the accusation of doing that. This guy gets a free pass. And while the real president comes within inches of a prison cell, this guy, who everyone knows is straight up guilty of multiple crimes involving corruption while serving in public office. I mean, he told you what he did in that one video. He basically pleaded guilty in that video. He gets to walk. The conclusion we draw from this is that well obviously is that trump is going to win the election it's, it's not just because life was easier under his administration that's going to be one thing but because he's the only candidate running on the platform of cleaning out the corruption which has become so transparent transparent enough for the whole nation to see and people increasingly don't like seeing the corruption and he's the only one promising to do anything about it I'm sure there's technically Ron DeSantis, but that, oh, ooh, ooh, that ship is sinking so fast. And you know what? He, he did it to himself. He did it to himself. He didn't need to jump into the race. He was effectively a shoe-in for 2028. After Trump had his second term, he was the shoe-in. He was the guy that everyone looked to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When Trump is out, we put Ron DeSantis in. It's cool. And he, he ruined that for himself. He stepped in the quicksand. And now look at him, drowning in a puddle of dirt. And what's... And we have Trump being... They're, they're trying to put him behind bars. While the people that we know for a fact are corrupt and have committed crimes, and we know what the crimes are. We Heck, we even know how they committed them at this point in the game. We know who was involved, who did it, how they did it, what they did, and when and even where. In the case of the Hunter Biden stuff, in the case of uh, the FISA courts spying on Trump, crossfire hurricane. We, we know all this. And yet the people who committed literal crimes, and we have all this information on the crime, they walk. But the guy who they can't prove a single damn thing about no matter how much they investigate him, no matter what crime they charge this guy with, no matter what accusation they levy his way, they can't prove a, a, a single thing about him. And I'm talking about Trump. He's the one that they try to put behind bars, which tells you a lot about the system as a whole and how corrupt it is and potentially how compromised they are 
in all these other scandals because they were there. And a lot of them helped facilitate it. So now they're trying to get rid of the man, promising to dismantle their network. It truly is a crime syndicate. And that's what's being exposed here. And the Bidens, again, are just the most notable and sloppy with their corruption, which is why we know so much about their corruption. Everyone knew that the Clintons and the Bushes were corrupt. Everyone knew that the other administration were corrupt. But somehow the Bidens are the first ones that we're able to see. No matter how hard you try to squint and look at it sideways, it's like, yeah, no, that's corruption. (laughs) They're the first ones we see. It's not because they were the first to be corrupt. It's just that they were sloppy. They were the worst at covering their tracks. And because they were bad at covering their tracks and they were so in bed with everyone else, them and Epstein, Epstein got caught. Now the whole thing's unraveling for all of them. And that corruption is being exposed for the entire nation to see. It's honestly a good thing that we get to see it, but it'd be better if we got action. And currently there's only one man promising that action and his name is Donald Trump. But we will see, we will see what becomes of this. We will have to see. And now we get to the final story of today's episode, which is uh, a collection of things that Putin has said over a number of different speeches. And I'll be honest, I've sort of lost track over some of them. Although I I do have uh, the St. Petersburg's uh, 26th International Economic Forum here. I had the comments that he made to the African delegation when they met in Russia. And then I had the remarks he made earlier on in the week regarding the Ukraine counteroffensive. And so I, instead of making separate topics about all of them, I figured I'd just put them all together. And because they, they go together in an interesting way. And they do lay out a number of things about Russia, Russia's position on the war, Russia's position internationally, uh, as well as what they aim to do with this emerging world order, the, the multipolar world order. So, uh, and again, because Russia's really setting the temple here, and I think that this, these numbers of comments that he's making really convey that, especially as you watch the Ukrainians flounder in the background with their counteroffensive and the West hollow itself out trying to support and arm that counteroffensive. Seeing Putin meeting with world leaders uh, back to back to back and making agreements and speaking to them directly not only demonstrates uh, definitively if, well, I, I, at, at what point are we going to recognize, and by we, I mean, you know, the political class, the analysts, the news, when are they going to recognize that Russia is not isolated? When are they going to recognize that? I think it's going to take the BRICS summit, and I, I think it's going to be a St. Petersburg as well. I think it's going it's to take that. When all those countries, some say 81, although if I don't think it's 81 BRICS members, but 81 countries that are willing to go along with what the BRICS have to uh, have in mind, sort of like a, a, a the new Bretton Woods. Because that, that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at the Russians laying the groundwork for the new Bretton Woods conference, which is what's going to happen at this new BRICS summit if essentially the whole world shows up 
for the meeting and even France, Emmanuel Macron of France is asking for an invitation to this meeting, this BRICS summit in South Africa. Well, shoot, it's in South Africa, it can't be in St. Petersburg. But we're looking at the groundwork being laid for a brand new global order that's going to rule the day for at least the rest of this century. Like things are changing uh, and Xi Jinping said it himself, when we come together, and he's talking about him and Putin, when we come to him, when we come together, we make possible changes that have not happened in a hundred years. And that's what's happening here. Changes that have not happened in a hundred years are happening. And it's the Russians who are in the driver's seat. There's lots of talk about how the Russians have become a, a client state of the Chinese. They're subservient to China. No, the Russians are a great power. And I've said as much on the podcast for the longest. And I, I'm surprised that I have to articulate why. But they are a great power. They have their own foreign policy. They conduct their own policy independently of the Chinese. The Chinese, if anything, are dependent on the Russians as much as the Russians are dependent on the Chinese. The Russians depend on China's economy, but the Russians have the rest of the world that they're interfacing with as well. It's not just China. And again, that goes back to people misunderstanding the multipolar world order. They think it's just United States, Russia, China. No, it's US, Russia, China, Japan, Turkey, India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Egypt, Arabia, Iran. It's the multipolar world order, not the tripolar world order, not the quadrupolar world order. Oh, the EU is a great power. It's multinational, truly multinational in scope. That's what we're dealing with here, the multipolar world order. So this, this idea that the Russians are subservient to China is inaccurate. In fact, it is the Russians in China who are leading together the emergence of the multipolar world order. But if you had to pick a, a single leader out of the two, it's Russia right now. It is most certainly Russia right now. The Chinese are content to being in the background, minding their business, which is the business of doing business, and letting the Russians do the speaking. Russia's doing the speaking. Russia's out there doing the speaking and the fighting. The Chinese will be doing the fighting soon enough with Taiwan. Hopefully, Blinken has done a good enough job to keep that from happening for a while. But the Russians are front and center. They are at the center of the stage. And they are the ones in the driver's seat, not just of the conflict in Ukraine, but of this transition to the multipolar world order. They are the leader of the multipolar world order. And that's a very underappreciated fact. And so that's a lot of these comments that Putin has made when put together really sort of convey that. And that's why I decided to cover them, not just because they're important on their own, which they are, but because altogether they really do convey sort of the situation that we are looking at right now. So I'll start with his remarks on Ukraine's counteroffensive. Now he claims that 160 tanks were destroyed 360 armored vehicles destroyed. He says, quote, it is a massive counteroffensive with the use of prepared reserves. The enemy, he's talking about Ukraine, the enemy had no success in any of the sectors. They had heavy losses, 
all of their losses are close to the estimate of what is called catastrophic in terms of personnel. The losses may wounds that can be may be wounds that can be healed, or they may be permanent. Usually permanent losses are 25%, but Ukraine's losses are almost 50-50. We have 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine. As for armored vehicles that have lost, uh, as for armored vehicles, they have lost over 160 tanks and almost 360 armored vehicles of various types during that time, which we are sure, end quote. Now that's some bold statements. That is some very bold statements, 160 tanks, 360 armored vehicles. But then again, when you, you see the numerous pictures and videos of these, uh, these tanks and armored vehicles, just black images in the background in these lines and these columns, it's believable. It's very believable. And then of course you have the obvious fact well, actually, I can't necessarily say it's obvious because I only stumbled across it myself while talking about this in the last episode. The Ukrainians don't have air cover. They do not have air cover for their land vehicles, for their land forces. And so there's nothing stopping the Russian Air Force or Russian missiles from taking them down. The Ukrainians do not have sufficient air defense to cover that. And they, of course, we're talking about sending two F-16s. Ooh, as if that was going to give them control over the skies. It's not. It's not. And that's assuming that they knew how to fly the damn things, which they have to be trained to do. And even if you could, that's what? Two fighter jets? Come on now. Come on now. Two fighter jets against Russia is crazy. Two fighter jets to get air superiority is crazy. That That's not air cover. <laughs> that's not air cover. That's uh, You can hit something from the air. You're, you're not covered. That's like that's like tearing off a strip from a, a towel, tearing a strip off of a towel and covering it. You covering yourself with it and saying, "Look, I have covered." No, you don't. You're exposed. You have a little bit. You have a, a little bit of modesty left, but you're exposed. You're not covered at all. There is no air cover in that. And so, because the Ukrainians don't have air cover, which is necessity for the protection of your land forces, because they don't have air cover. They're completely exposed to the enemy's air power, which is the Russian Air Force, which has been getting more aggressive, certainly since like March and April, when they started whittling down, completing the whittling down of Ukraine's air defense network. And they're still actively hunting what remains of Ukraine's air defenses. And as air defense, Ukraine's air defense continues to get weaker, the Russian Air Force can continue to get more aggressive. And we're seeing that right now because there's nothing stopping the, the Russian Air Force and Russian drones carrying bombs on them from literally just bullying the Ukrainian armor. Uh, that's what this is. That their armored vehicles are just getting bullied by Russian aircraft and Russian anti-tank missiles and Russian artillery and Russian anti-tank artillery. It's just, it's toxic. It's actually toxic, and the Ukrainians, again, haven't even been able to reach Russia's real defensive lines, the heavy fortification that the Russians have been digging into for months now in preparation for this coming offensive. They haven't even got there yet. And Putin also sort of confirms on his end, uh, assuming that you want to run with his numbers, perhaps you do, perhaps you don't, 
But he says that their losses, their permanent losses, so we're talking deaths, essentially, are almost 50-50. Which is, again, in line with what we've observed throughout the entire war, which is Ukraine's deaths have been consistently around half of their total casualties from the beginning to end of this war. It's been a, a shocking thing to observe. And so here he is, Putin, sort of corroborating that. But what he also says, and this is very interesting, now again, whether you want to believe it or not is up to you, but he says that we have, and he's referring to Russia, we have 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine. 10 times. Now, that completely blows out of the water the 7 to 1 loss ratios, the 8 to 1 that we heard about over the course of last summer, the 9 to 1 that was rumored, 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine is what he says you Russia's losses are at. So if we take the our podcast estimate here, which is that Ukraine's total casualties are probably coming close to half a million, but we're going to go with 400,000. If Russia has taken 10 times fewer casualties than Ukraine, and Ukraine's total casualties are about 400,000, maybe half a million, then that means Russia's total casualties are around 40,000, which is, again, in line with numbers that we've seen. The BBC they did that article where they were trying to find the total number of Russian dead, and they came up with a little over 24,000 dead Russians. So if we assume that the Russians are 50-50 in their casualties, although they say that 25% is normal. Permanent loss is the, the total casualty ratio. Uh, if, we, if we assume that the Russians are 50-50 in their losses, their deaths to their rest of their casualties as well, then that would mean that the Russians have taken a, a total of 50,000 losses. So that's not too far out of line. It's not necessarily the one-tenth of 400,000, but it is one t- it's a tenth of half a million. And it's a hell of a lot lower than half a million. Like, yes, it's bad for the Russians to be losing those men. 50,000 casualties is no joke. I mean, this is war. And these are certainly not numbers that we've been dealing with. Uh, not in it. Uh, any of our wars, not in such a short space of time, but a year, 50,000 casualties with such high intensity combat compared to half a million. And these are, again, these are the podcast estimates here. We're talking 400,000. We're being nice to the Ukrainians. Douglas McGregor, RFK Jr., they're not nice to the Ukrainians. And perhaps they're the ones who are right. And I'm just lowballing it a bit too much by hundreds of thousands. I already said Colonel Douglas McGregor and RFK Jr. are effectively putting the total number of Ukrainian casualties at 700,000, three quarters of a million. Now, what's that? Oh, oh boy, the Russians have lost 75,000 men. Oops. And all it took was three quarters of a million Ukrainians to do that? That's not winning. So three quarters of a million... 75,000 Russian total casualties and then 25, 24,000 dead. That sounds pretty accurate. So now the more we dig into these numbers, the more I'm looking at, okay, I'm, uh, I, like I thought, I'm probably going to be 
underestimating Ukraine's casualties a bit much. But this is what Putin is saying. And the Russians aren't exactly lying. They haven't they haven't been lying that much throughout this war. Perhaps because of the pressures on them to lead the multipolar world and the emergence of the multipolar world have forced them to be much more honest and transparent. Maybe it's just a feature of the Russian system and we haven't really appreciated it until now. But they have been fairly honest throughout the war. So I don't have too much reason to believe that he's lying here. He also says, quote, our troops were near Kiev. Do we need to go back or not? I'm asking a rhetorical question. It is clear you have no answer. He's talking to the reporter. And he says, I can only answer it myself. I think we'll be back, end quote. And he also says that Russia, quote, Russia will enter a new Ukrainian territory on a new axis soon, end quote. Now, will he push straight into Kiev? Who knows? Uh, I'm not I'm not even going to go there with the predictions. What I will say, what I will say is they're going to attack Ukraine. Well, what, what else is there to be said? The Ukrainians have moved troops to the border between them and Belarus, so they're very afraid that the Russians are going to attack them there. But perhaps they're going to attack in Kharkov and then just catch the Ukrainians completely by surprise because the Ukrainians are attacking and the Russians are just going to send in a, a brand new force of troops from a completely different axis, expanding the front line and threatening Ukraine's flanks. Because if we look at a map of Ukraine, right, if we look at a map of Ukraine, they've gone, the map hasn't moved much for months, for almost a year. So they've gotten really comfortable with the positions that they've had. So if the Russians suddenly come in around the Kharkov area, uh, that's a problem because now it threatens your established flanks that you've had for a year that you got comfortable in. That, that That's bad news. That's very, very, very bad news. This isn't what you want to see. This isn't what you want. Especially when you're struggling as is to try to get past you, Russia's defenses and you haven't even made it to their real defensive lines. What are you going to do when a brand new Russian army starts rolling in from your flanks? From a, a direction that you, quite frankly, were not expecting. Because if they've reallocated troops to the border with Belarus, because there are joint Russian and Belarusian units out there. If they move the troops to the border with Belarus, that means that you've left Kharkov wide open. It means that you've left Sumy right open. It means that you've potentially left Chernihiv open as well. So if they're going to come in from a brand new axis, maybe that means that they attack from the south as well, or through Crimea with a brand new push, or it means that they do attack from the north. Maybe they go along the port, the Polish border, and push to Lviv instead of to Kiev. Maybe that's what they do. Maybe they come in from multiple new axes at once instead of only one. Because he says we're going to come in from a new axis sometime soon. He that's not necessarily that it's only going to be one new axis. Maybe he attacks Kharkov and Kiev at the same time. Maybe he goes for Kiev and Lviv and opens up a, a front in the exact opposite direction from where the Ukrainians are. But I, I think he's going to go for Kharkov. If, if I have to bet... 
if I have to throw my throw the dice here, I'm going to say that they go for Kharkov. Why? Because it threatens the flanks of the entire Ukrainian established line and force them to redeploy along the entire line, which the Russians can exploit for their own offensive purposes. Because there's not necessarily a guarantee that if you open up a front from the rear, that the Ukrainians are going to move the troops that they have in the trenches in front of you. In the south, there's no guarantee that they're necessarily going to move troops away from that to go find the north. They might just go find some dudes on the street and put a gun in their hand and send them to the front instead. But if you attack from the flanks of the existing line, then they have to use the troops that they already have there to respond to that. That's my guess. I expect to be wrong, because I usually am when I'm talking about the Russian military and making predictions on what exactly they're going to do. But if I had to throw the dice, I'll throw the dice like that. But these are very interesting statements being made by Putin. And I don't think we can discount them, especially as, again, Ukraine's counteroffensive goes incredibly poorly. Russia is going to make an offensive eventually. We all know that they will. So once Ukraine's offensive peters out and they have nothing left to give, they exhaust their reserves and the Russians start moving, I think we're going to see a, a, a much more rapid pace to this war than we've seen since the beginning, where we're going to see the Russians start capturing land in a way that we haven't seen since the beginning, where they stole nearly the entirety of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline. I think we're going to see that again when the backbreaker offensive begins. And it's not going to be a rapid push. It's going to be slow grind, but it's going to be a grind with some very noticeable changes to the map instead of the very, very, very creeping offensive where you see them gradually subsume Bakhmut and then surround Bakhmut on all sides, and then they take Bakhmut slowly. I don't think we're going to see that. I don't think it's going to be that slow anymore, especially once they inject brand new armies into the Ukrainian fight. We're going to see a faster pace of progression. It's going to it's gonna be slow. It's going to be methodical, but it's not, it's not going to be... We, we took one foot of land today. Oh, we took another foot of land tomorrow. It's going to be, oh, we took a mile today. Oh, we took a half a mile tomorrow. Oh, we took another mile. It's going to be it's gonna be like that. I, I think that's what it's going to be. And that's still pretty slow when you consider how big Ukraine is. But compared to the rest of the war, that's really fast. And I think that's what we're going to see. Now, Russia says that uh, Putin says that, quote, we have a lot of depleted uranium munitions and we will use them in response. There is no use. There's no need for their preventative use. Now, he's talking about responding to the depleted uranium that we've supplied the Ukrainians with. And we as the British and and we saw part of that munition store get blown up when the Russians were targeting Ukrainian ammunition dumps. So now they're going, okay, well, if you're going to use depleted uranium, then we're going to use depleted uranium. Now, will they actually? They might, although they might say that they just won't until they encounter it on the battlefield. I don't think they're going to use it in parts of the front that aren't, uh, that they're not being shot at with depleted uranium. But if they encounter a place where they are being shot at with depleted uranium rounds, then they will respond with depleted uranium rounds and get, throw back what's being thrown at them. Because that's how the Russians have taken the entire war, really. 
So escalation there and potential escalation, the likes of which we haven't seen since, well, the beginning of the war. And all of it in Russia's favor. Russia's winning on the battlefield. So then what do we do? What else? Will you move on to the international front? And on the international front, you have St. Petersburg, where Putin met with a number of other delegates. Uh, his guest of honor was the president of Algeria. And in this uh, economic forum, he talked about there was an emphasis on using the state to support businesses hurt by the sanctions war. He talked about expanding infrastructure capacity for rails and ports in the Far East. Uh, so Russian Vladivostok and whatnot, so that you could attract uh, more goods coming in through the ports over there. He also talked about the, he put a very heavy emphasis on the importance of the north-south connection between Russia and Iran, as well as the railroad that has uh, been established between Russia and Iran as well. And he also pledges to extend high-speed internet across all towns in Russia with populations above 500 people. And he says that he wants to attract um, tourism. He wants water and ski resorts. Essentially, he wants to make Russia a very nice place to live for the Russians. And he wants to attract tourism as well, to bring in money for the state. Interestingly enough, he does bring up the demographic issues that Russia faces. And he says that there is a very pressing need to use automation and AI to compensate for the demographic-induced shortfalls in workforce because there's going to be fewer people working. So you're going to have to be more effective and more efficient. And he also puts an emphasis on educating those who are still there, the smaller but very crucial generation of young workers. He says, okay, they're going to need to be much more heavily educated. They're going to need to be experts in their fields so that they can be very effective and very competitive and so they can have higher wages because you know you don't necessarily want unskilled labor and then pay unskilled labor higher wages no we want you to have high wages but we also want you to be high skilled labor so that that's going to be the focus and it'll be very interesting to see uh the success of policy because the demographic issue is going to be something that the entire developed world is dealing with so are we watching russia in this regard be a leader in handling demographic decline uh, in the interim period between, you know, the decline and the recovery. The recovery is going to be there. I mean, there are populations of people within countries that do have kids, so the recovery is going to be there. But the interim, the decades of population decline, and the, in the periods where the workforce is much smaller than you would otherwise expect it to be and what you need it to be, is Russia going to lead the way in dealing with that as well? Because again, they are, they're a leader here. They are the leader of this new emerging world. And one of the common issues in the multipolar world order, at least among the developed countries, is the demographic issue. So are they leading the way towards navigating demographic decline in this regard? It'll be very interesting to see this moving forward. So he does that. And he also says that they should use... AI and automation for mining and industrial production primarily. So that that was one of the key takeaways from the St. Petersburg Economic uh, St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. But the last thing that he made a series of remarks on was uh, a separate event. 
now I couldn't find the name for the event, so perhaps it was just a meeting that he had with a number of African delegates. But in this meeting that he had with the African delegation, he made public a number of draft treaties which were signed by the Russian and Ukrainian delegations back in March of 2022. We often talk about, again, the unofficial Minsk III agreement, where the Russians came in suing for peace and they tried to get Ukraine to sign the deal. Ukraine said no. And now we see him publishing, well, making public, and he makes public the deal that was reached and it was signed by the delegates. He has made public this deal. Uh, and this came in sort of in response to the, the African delegation when they came in they came in, they were talking about peace, they put forth their own peace proposals, and Putin unveiled what we knew happened, but we didn't necessarily know the specifics of this treaty. He unveiled the treaty. The Treaty of Permanent Neutrality and Security Guarantees, where the Russians were going to withdraw their troops from the territories north of Kiev, It and... There was gonna. They had laid out the specific number of troops and equipment that the Ukrainian military was gonna have. Uh, the Russians wanted Ukraine to have around eighty-five thousand regular troops, fifteen thousand national guardsmen. So basically, a hundred thousand troops. They were gonna allow them to have three hundred and forty-two tanks, eighty-nine multiple raw multiple launch rocket systems, and they. It, it was very in detail down to the specific item, line by line, item by item is that the treaty covered it all. The, the Ukrainians wanted to have 250,000, and they wanted to have, obviously, more. The Russians said, if you're going to be neutral, well, you have to act neutral. So it was more likely that the Russians were going to get their way, again, because both of them signed this. This is what we were looking at. Uh, and, and again, uh, we's, this was sabotaged. This was the deal that both of them reached. And you have that that narrative where people say, oh, Putin miscalculated because he thought he was going to go in and get the peace. And then, well, it literally almost happened. It, it was even closer than I said it was. Where I didn't know that they both signed on to the document. I didn't know that they got that far. I just knew that they were in the peace talks and that they almost had an agreement, but that the Ukrainians walked out because the West promised to give them aid and money. I didn't know that they had made so much progress as the point of signing a draft treaty and that's one of the the biggest thing that hit me looking at this agreement and i think it was very deliberate that putin sort of made public this thing as he was talking to the african leaders when they were giving him peace proposals because he had been given multiple peace proposals indonesia gave him one china proposed one although uh, indonesia china I believe South Korea put one forth. A number of African states put uh, peace proposals forth. India has sort of stayed silent on the issue, though they're in favor of peace. And now you have this African delegation coming forth again with another peace proposal. Uh, granted, uh, to be fair, Zelensky did put forth his own peace plan. We covered that on the episode, on the podcast uh, back in December and January. But Putin has sort of been bombarded with all these peace proposals from countries who are in with the multipolar world order who are on board with the new world that is being built 
And so there's probably been pressure on him to make peace. So as he used this opportunity to expose the peace that was going to be had. Because it's not like he's just, a, oh, we don't want peace. We just want war. No, we came in trying to make peace. And here's the peace that we wanted. The Ukrainians signed it. And that's really just uh, such a damning piece of evidence. You know, like, you signed this. <laughs> you signed this. And you know, you're going to lecture us on peace. You signed the treaty. The draft treaty, it wasn't necessarily um, binding, but you signed this agreement. And then you walked away from it. We came in suing for peace. You said yes, only to say no two seconds later. So to you, Ukraine, and to all the nations of the world, don't come lecturing us about peace because we aren't the ones who said no. You want to you lecture somebody about peace? How about you go ask the Ukrainians why they said no to this treaty right here that they signed? And that's it's the diplomatic equivalent of being caught in 4K. It's what just happened to the Ukrainians. You got caught in 4K. They, they caught you, bro. They caught you lacking so incredibly hard. It is it's just so damning. What do you say to that? It's like, oh, yeah, we signed the treaty, but um, see, what had happened was, uh, 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 fuck Putin, am I right? <laughs> like, what, what are you, how are you supposed to counter that? What are you supposed to say to that? Oops, we, <laughs> we signed the treaty, but didn't actually want to make peace. Well, th that goes against the narrative that Zelensky is the peacemaker. Okay, well, uh, what do you what do you say to that? There, there, I don't think there's much that can be said. Oh, you signed it and then walked away. So clearly, we're not the ones who don't want to make peace. It's you. Now the world's looking at Ukraine. Okay, I guess Russians aren't the ones opposing war. It's the West. And that's the takeaway here. That's the takeaway here. Now, one of the other things, uh, and before I, I continue, I'll say that Putin claims, he, he claims that the assassination of one of the lead negotiators on the, the Ukrainian side was killed by MI6, which is the British equivalent to the CIA. The, the treaty also stipulated, because it was the Treaty on Permanent Neutrality and Security Guarantees, the treaty also stipulated that the U.S., Turkey, the U.K., France, Belarus, and China were all going to be security guarantors of Ukraine. And I guess as a side note on us, in a, in a very small way, uh, in a very small way, because peace is the priority here. Keeping people from dying is the priority here. But in a small way, I am a little happy that this treaty wasn't signed. Because, well, I'm not trying to be a security guarantor for Ukraine. I'm not trying to babysit them. I don't want I don't want to provide daycare for the Ukrainians. So again, in that very small and very personal way, not the priority, very, very, very small. I'm kind of happy that they didn't sign the treaty. Granted, it wouldn't be binding for us because we, we didn't sign the treaty. But yeah, so in that little way and i can't stress little enough because again peace is the priority here kind of happy that we didn't get a part of that and add another dependency to the long list of liabilities that we already have 
But this is the proposal that the Russians put forth, that the U.S., U.K., France, Turkey, and your neighbor Belarus, they're all going to protect you. China, the new superpower, they're going to they're gonna be your security guarantor. That opens up our flank from the, from the opposite end. If we violate your neutrality, now we have to deal with all, we have to deal with these other great powers. We're going to offer that to you, a check and balance on ourselves. And all you have to do is literally nothing, be neutral, and that's it. My goodness, that's a deal. And the Ukrainians said no. So uh, not only is it damning that the Ukrainians uh, said yes, I say they say no, but they said yes, they signed the treaty. And then said no two seconds later, that's a deal. Like, I don't, I don't know if you know, that that's an incredible deal to have after you just got invaded by this country that you can't win against, that they're going to put checks and balances on themselves. They're not going to take any more of your land than land that you already don't have control of. You don't have control of Crimea. You don't have control of the Donbass and Luhansk. You already don't control those territories. And you haven't been able to get control of them for eight years. They're saying, recognize these changes to the border and then just be a neutral country. We're not, we will offer you protection from essentially all of our our meaningful neighbors the united states britain and france turkey our neighbor to the south china our neighbor to the east britain and france to the west the united states to the west and technically to the east with alaska and our pacific fleet and our bases in the middle east we're, we're going to literally put checks and balances on ourselves and all you have to do is accept that you have lost territory that you already don't have control of anymore, and you have to be neutral. And they said no. They said yes, and then they said no. So it's like, okay, well, I, I, you don't want peace. If you're not going to accept a deal that that good, that, that's a very benevolent deal. That's a very good deal. And you said no. So sucks to suck. Now, Alex, both Alex and Alexander of the Durand were very quick to point out that what we learn from the release of this draft treaty is that the whole siege of Kiev narrative, you know, the one where the Ukrainians launched this glorious counteroffensive that forced the Russians out in the north, yet that narrative, we learned that that one is about as real as the ghost of Kiev was, which is to say it's not real at all. There was no great glorious counteroffensive in the north that pushed the Russians out. The Russians walked out. Now, this has been a, a debated topic uh, before, but now we see that it is literally stipulated in this treaty that the Ukrainians signed. And oh my, it's that it's they literally got caught in 4K. They literally got caught in 4K. Like the more I'm saying this, the more I'm, I'm going on about the treaty and the peace that could have been had. And the things that are going on in this war, it's like, oh my goodness, you you got caught, you got exposed, you literally got pranked, <laughs> and it's 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 just that's just such a damning piece of evidence. That's such a damning piece of evidence. That's like, uh, I, I, it's so bad for the Ukrainian side. I just, <laughs> it's it's like you, there's a cookie jar, right? This cookie jar. Now there's, there's about 20 cookies in there. 
you dip your hand in the cookie jar, took half of it out, and then you ran off with the cookie. Now your parents come to you and they ask, did you eat from the cookie jar? You say no. <laughs> and then they pull up a picture of you dipping your hands into the cookie jar, <laughs> looking at the camera so you they can see that it's you. They can see your face. It's There's no guesswork needed. It's, it's literally you. It's you got caught in 4K. It's it's so damning. That's the level of like damning evidence that the Ukrainians have against them right now. With the, with the fact that they signed this treaty, it's just it's so bad. It is so that really does change my perspective on this. It really does. And it's but again, that narrative that they had this little offensive in the north that pushed the Russians out is fake. And it's been proven fake because of this treaty. The Russians signed the treaty themselves as well, and they pulled out from the north as per the treaty. And then the Ukrainians reneged on their word. So the second the Russians leave and follow through on their actions, you fall back on your word. So not only are the Ukrainians against peace, not only have they proven themselves against peace, against a very favorable treaty to them, that only required them to be neutral and accept the loss of territories that they already didn't control. But they're duplicitous. You offer them such a... Again, this, this is a very generous treaty. That's such a generous treaty. Like, that's such favorable terms that they were given. They took the terms of the treaty. They signed the treaty let the Russians do their part in moving out of the North, and then they turn their back. That They're duplicitous. They're duplicitous. And Putin said that what guarantees are that they won't break agreements again. So now we're getting more people in Russia talking about the things that I was talking about when the war started, which is how are the Russians supposed to trust the Ukrainians when the Ukrainians can't be trusted to honor their word when they sign a treaty? This is a continuation of that. It's a continuation of what happened with the Minsk agreements all over again. It's quite literally Minsk three, in an unofficial capacity, of course. They're duplicitous. So not only do they not want peace, they won't take a favorable treaty, a favorable peace to them, but they'll sign a treaty, make you think that they're that you're getting somewhere, and then they'll stab you in the back. They're duplicitous. The Ukrainian, it, it, this is just so bad. The fact that he released this treaty is just so bad for the Ukrainians. And he's been sitting on this for a whole year. And it's, just, it's just bad for the Ukrainians, especially now they're in this counteroffensive and they're failing in the counteroffensive. And now they get this, they get this uh, 4K photo video evidence of them robbing a bank <laughs> levied against them. It, It's bad. It's really bad. And it, but what it also confirms, and I'll sort of leave off on this point, it confirms what we've really known all along, because we've been, I've been saying it for a while, you've known it for a while. It confirms to us that this war really could have been over literally a month after it began. It confirms that the Russians came in suing for peace. And it confirms that the Ukrainians were going along with the peace process. They signed the treaty. Again, it's not binding or anything, but you signed the draft agreement. 
you agreed to some of these stipulations as us at least as a sort of baseline for further negotiations to work out the kinks of, of the and the specifics you signed on to this the war could have literally been over in a month with a, a favorable peace to ukraine with all the countries that they would have been allies with courtesy of nato and the eu as their security guarantors and they would have had to do literally nothing and they didn't take it and now they have to sit in this puddle of their own consequences the the consequences of their actions this is oh it's it's I, I don't I don't know what else to say other than it's it's so bad for the Ukrainians. Like I, I can only say that so many times, but it's bad for the Ukrainians. It's bad. But I will leave it there. Woo! That's all I've got for you today on this episode. That's all I've got. I hope I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.